Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, let's begin today with reading an excerpt from my letter. The letter goes, Lord, my God, who am I that you should forsake me, a child of your love, and now become as the most hated one? The one you have thrown away as unwanted, unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there is no answer. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. I'm told God lives in me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Now what raw, visceral emotions and such pain, anguish, sorrow, and distress in those words. And one must even begin to wonder, how can you even speak like that to God, right? Shouldn't a thunderbolt come down by now? <laughs> right? Is it even legal to speak like that to God, to carry that kind of language and tone to the creator of all things? And yet we also sense in these words that we just read an earnest desire for God, his nearness, to meet with him, to not struggle any longer. Now this letter, these words that we just read, it's part of a letter written by the saintly Mother Teresa to a spiritual director in 1957. Mother Teresa wrote these words and we know her for the amazing things that she did in her life. But how many of you know that she struggled with doubt, disappointment, even disillusionment? Now how many of you have ever had a thought, even in church, that Am I crazy? Is any of this thing real? You know, is the Bible real? Is Jesus real? Is the presence of God real? What am I actually doing here? Am I making all this up? Or is this some kind of mass delusion? Or you've just encountered some kind of setback and you are disappointed, disillusioned, you feel disillusioned. In spite of story after story of answered prayers, encounters with God, testimonies both personal and from trusted friends, for where there's no explanation other than God did something, not to mention billions of believers all around the world and all through human history who are tests of the same experience, we still doubt. In another one of the letters, Mother Teresa writes, in my soul I feel just that terrible pain of loss of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not really existing. Now have you, like Mother Teresa, ever had that thought, that moment when you doubted? And has that moment ever turned into a day, that day into a week, that week into a month, and that month into a season, when your faith, this settled assurance, this reality of God is called into question? Now if so, you are not alone. You're not alone in that. You're standing shoulder to shoulder with possibly people on your right and your left with myself, with church fathers, with heroes and legends like Mother Teresa and William Wilberforce and men that Jesus says was the greatest man that will ever live up to him, John the Baptist. And we'll talk more about him in just a few moments. All of them had or have doubts. And the case I'd like to make today is this, that doubt isn't an isolated spiritual experience for the weaker ones. Instead, we all great or normal will come face to face with doubt at some point in our spiritual journey. 
And what I'm getting at today is this, that we need to reframe our understanding of doubt, not just uh, as a hindrance to faith, but actually what produces mature faith in us. If I could have a secondary title to my message, it would be this, the benefit of doubt. It's the, that's a benefit when it comes to doubt. It's a strange title, isn't it? Because haven't we seen doubt utterly ravage and rip the faith of many people's to shreds? The faith of many, many people's faith into shreds. And I think of a couple of stories. You know, I think of my friend Tia, who I went to ministry school with. You know, she was a student, uh, and I was uh, one of her interns. You know, and I remember she had this like, larger-than-life personality, one of those people that like, when she comes in a room, you will hear her. You'll hear her before you see her, that kind of personality. Really loud, really joyful, uh, hug people a bit too much. Uh, one of those, you know, just a very happy person. And, you know, she was immensely gifted prophetically. Like, she was such a prophetic person. You know, she would give such amazing words that brought such hope and renewed courage in people. And then uh, I heard, I, I've been watching her, her journey uh, post-school, and she, uh, you know, went out to plant a church with a few people, and that church environment eventually grew to be really abusive and toxic. And then she left the church. She uh, had all these doubts in her and she saw the inconsistency among church leadership and she said, I'm done. And she left. And I also think of my friend Daryl, you know, who I met in a combined uniform group camp, Boys Brigade. Uh, and, and so you know, I met him there. And uh, you know, I, I, I met him again in the army, we were, were coincidentally in the same unit, and uh, I remember you know, meeting him at a point, and at a point you know, he had left the faith. You know, he had encountered too many questions during his junior college life, and he saw such inconsistency again in the church, and then he said, I'm leaving the faith. And uh, he was an atheist by the time I met him. Now, I wonder if any of these stories are familiar to you. Perhaps these stories are stories of your friends, family members, or even your own story. Now today, Daryl is a follower of Jesus. You know, i thank thankful for Facebook. You know, I'm, I've, I've seen him uh, uh, encountering a renewed faith in God, and today he is a leader in his church, and from what I can tell, his faith is stronger than it's ever been. And today, Tia, uh, she has utterly disavowed Christian faith. She's a psychic now. She has an utter disdain and hatred for Christians. Two very similar stories of doubt and yet two drastically different outcomes. Which leads me to the question, and I'm sure this resonates with many of you on a soul level, and that is this. Is it possible to question your faith without losing it? Is it possible to question your faith without losing it? And I like to contend that it is very possible. Now, we all know doubt can come in many shapes and forms. It may come in the form of trauma, wounds, personal loss, sufferings, and even intellectual obstacles or trying to reconcile the Bible with science or personal worldviews. The term itself can be a source of both confusion and contention. Isn't doubt condemned by God? Is the church supposed to be intolerant of doubters? Is there a line between questioning and doubting that ought not be crossed? Is doubt a sign of spiritual weakness or of intellectual honesty and integrity? And the goal of talking about doubt today, you know, we have limited time, so we can't cover the full spectrum of the subject. And our goal today isn't so much that all of our doubts will be answered and resolved, but that we will realize that there is room for doubt. There is room to doubt in the community of faith. Before we move on further, it's important to clarify that there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt 
if unchecked, can become a condition of the mind, a destination rather than a passage. It can even be celebrated as a cynical posture of skepticism, worn like a badge of honor by the seemingly intellectual. That is unbelief. Doubt itself is not shameful or sinful. It's quite natural. It's not wrong by itself, but unbelief, on the other hand, is sinful. So what's the difference between the two? First off, I think doubt is when you say, I can't believe, but unbelief is when you say, I won't believe. One is grappling for more evidence, more assurances. Unbelief is no matter what you tell me, I refuse to. Doubt is questioning what you believe. Unbelief is a determined refusal to believe. Doubt is about honesty. I really want to. I think of that man in the Gospel of Mark who says, Lord, help my unbelief. I'm honest about it. But unbelief is obstinacy, is stubbornness. Your mind is already made up. I won't believe no matter what evidence you show me. Doubt is when you are looking for light. But unbelief is when you are contented with darkness. You don't want to. Today, I want to contend that it is possible to question your faith without losing it. And so as we begin this morning, I know, you're like, what? You haven't begun yet. As we begin this morning, (laughs) what is something right now about Jesus that you're struggling to believe? What is something that the Bible says that you're finding a hard time accepting? What is something that you find yourself wrestling with or struggling with, with the nature of God? And could they be the Spirit's invitation to not detach, but lean in closer? And it's with that that we look at passage of Scripture from Matthew 11. Join me in reading God's Word. Matthew 11, starting with verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the town of Galilee. When John, who was in person, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Sorry, I pronounced that word wrong. Blessed is anyone who does not, because, you know, church, blessed, does not stumble on account of me. This is the word of God. Now, who is John the Baptist? Who is John the Baptist? Apart from Jesus, John the Baptist is probably the most theologically significant figure in the Gospels. As was the case with Jesus, his birth was meticulously recorded. His entrance into the world was marked with angelic proclamation and divine intervention. Although his formative years were lived in obscurity in the desert, his public ministry ended nearly 400 years of prophetic silence. That was John the Baptist. John was the, voice, was the one whose voice was crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the coming Messiah. In this sense, his message and ministry marked the culmination of the law and the prophets and also heralded the inbreaking of God's kingdom. So John was this kind of transitional figure with one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New. Now, John, we read in the scriptures, was no crowd pleaser. He willingly confronted the hypocrisy of religious, the religious establishment. He did not hesitate to expose the immorality of Herod, and it was for that reason he was in prison. His ministry was marked with an uncompromising message of repentance and scores of followers, scores of people baptized in obedience to God. Now, I want you to let this sink in for just a moment. John, this John that I just talked about, doubted. John the Baptist doubted. After all he had seen, heard, and experienced, he doubted. His hopes had been dashed. 
his image of the Messiah quashed, his expectations left unfulfilled. A commentator wrote in reflection of this text, the dominant note of this text here is one of confusion. John's long trial in prison had left him confused. He was disillusioned almost. And isn't John's story our story? We have hopes, expectations, ideas about God and what he should do and shouldn't do. And soon into our faith, we realize that God is not and will not be controlled by our understanding, not le- much less subject to our control. And this realization either leads us to reverence or utter and complete disarray. And so we read here in, in the midst of doubt and questioning, John asks for assurance. He asks of Jesus this, he asks his disciples to ask Jesus this, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? This is the question he sent his disciples to ask Jesus. And notice this, that Jesus didn't scold him, didn't go like, why are you asking me this kind of question? Why do you doubt in the first place? He asked for assurance and Jesus was more than happy to oblige. And he said, and Jesus gives him this assurance in Matthew chapter 11, verse 5. And we read, that, read of that just now. And, you know, Jesus, you know, our scholars would say that he was making reference to this Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 61. And we all are familiar with this text. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Notice, Jesus, in referencing this prophecy to John, stops short of the last two lines. He says, The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. And Jesus stops as he references this prophecy, he doesn't go to the last two lines, the broken liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. It's as if to say, John, look at all the amazing things that are happening, but I'm not coming for you. There is no assault on the palace in the works. There's no army lying in wait. There's no a violent insurrection in the works. I've actually come to teach peace, forgiveness, and love. And we read this kind of text and almost think that Jesus is cold and unempathetic. He doesn't care. But we read down further in the gospel and we know that Jesus was in anguish and deep pain and loss. And he was in tears over the death of his, of, of his friend John. And I don't know how John must have felt as he heard these words. Would the hearing of miracles even further exacerbate his doubt and disappointment? And the text goes on to say this in verse 6. Blessed or happy is anyone who does not stumble, in some translations, is offended because of me. Notice he doesn't say, blessed are those who do not doubt. Blessed are those who are not disappointed with me. He says it's blessed are those who, when they doubt, unstumbled, unoffended. And the rest of the text takes an interesting turn. You know, I, I'm working through this text, but taking you somewhere. It takes an interesting turn from verse 7 onwards. It says this in God's word. As John's disciples were leaving, John began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he." Notice this, that Christ commands John even after he hears of his doubt and questions. 
D.A. Carson writes this, though some might put John in a bad light because of his seeming doubts regarding Jesus, Jesus himself spoke quite highly of John. John had often borne witness to Jesus. Now Jesus bears witness of John. So what Christ was saying is that John was steady. He was not shaken like a reed. John was sober. He lived a disciplined life, not in love with the luxuries and comforts of the world. John was a servant, a prophet of God. John was sent as a special messenger of the Lord. John was special, and he could be considered the greatest under the old covenant. I would like to think, because of Jesus' deliberate commendation of John, that John, even in doubt, experienced the assurance of Christ and ended life well. John shows us this, that you can have questions and remain a faithful follower of Jesus. You can have questions and remain a faithful follower of Jesus. We go down to verse 12. It says this, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied unto John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come, whoever has ears let them here. And so the point is this, the kingdom of heaven from ancient Israel to modern first world Singapore has been subject to violence, assault and attack. And for some, it's quite a literal violence, but for many of us, it's an ideological assault. It's an ideological opposition. In this world, we will face opposition, our beliefs, our faith, our practices. The more secular society becomes, the more pushed out our values and our beliefs and our practices are, the more opposed our way of life would be. Now, there's this great experiment in the desert. Uh, it's called Biodome, and it's a biodome built in the desert of Arizona, and this was an attempt to create a living environment for human and plant life. And it was noticed that, you know, they would plant trees in this biodome that had this controlled environment, air, temperature, water, and light. They will plant trees in this biodome. And it was noticed that the trees, they would grow up to a certain height and then it will just fall over. And this was repeated again and again and again. The tree will grow up a certain height, and then it will fall over. Now, they began to theorize why was that happening, why was that so, and they realized that there was no wind in the biodome. And because there was no wind, the trees didn't face or encounter any kind of opposition and pushing, and so the roots did not go down as deep as trees would in the typical environment. There was no wind. Without the wind, the trees will not sink their roots deep enough. Think about that for a second. Perseverance is actually important for us to develop the spiritual muscles that will take us into maturity. You don't read your way into maturity. You don't think your way into maturity. You persevere your way into maturity. And perseverance presupposes some kind of opposition. Tim Keller writes this about faith. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts. And apart from opposition, we will not grow. Our roots will not go deep enough. And so what if we can begin to see our doubts not as obstacles to our faith, but an invitation to a deeper, more resolute faith? Because doubt, I put it to you, is often the birth pains of a deepened faith. It's the birth pains of a deepened faith. Now, one of the things that works against us maturing through our doubts is that 
for a large part, churches have become doubt intolerant. We don't know how to walk with a person through crisis, or we are prone to make sweeping statements like, if you really had faith in Jesus, you wouldn't have any doubt, or if your faith was strong, you wouldn't struggle. And we inadvertently push out those who struggle from the very environment to which their faith grows and flourishes. First Timothy chapter one, this text we're familiar with, it says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by calling them, you may fight the better well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. What strong language, shipwreck. And so some in reaction to this would categorize instantly all doubt as inherently bad and an inevitable pathway to an abandonment of faith. We too often assume that doubts, questions, critiques of one's faith is the same as losing it. But this deception betrays the way historically Christians have viewed uh, struggle. Even the New Testament recognizes the difference between a Judas Iscariot and a Peter, both of whom betrayed denied Jesus, but yet one returned to him with a deeper longing and love, a robust, steadfast loyalty to him even unto death. If Peter's doubt wasn't the end of his faith, then why should it be ours? It is important for us to not equate a storm to a shipwreck. Just because you experience storms, it does not mean that your faith is now a wreck. Jesus, hear me, Jesus was tempted in every way. And yet his temptations did not equate to sinfulness, much like doubts do not equate to faithlessness. If you look at temptations in a certain way, are temptations good or bad? Most of us will say bad because temptations, if left unchecked, would inevitably lead to sin. But what if we view temptations in a different light? Could the temptations of life be an opportunity for us to express a fidelity to Jesus? When I'm tempted, instead of giving it to sin, I use it as an opportunity to express my fidelity, my steadfast loyalty to God and His ways. Is temptations good or bad? I don't know. It depends on how you respond to it. How you respond to it. Are doubts good or bad? It depends on how you respond to it. Doubts could be a means into apostasy, into an abandonment of faith, or doubt, this place of struggle and flux, could be the birth pains, the invitation to a deeper, more robust faith. And what I'm saying is this, in life we all go through storms, but not every storm leads to a shipwreck. Now some of you, uh, in, in processing doubt, you know, or some people, when they, talk, when, when they talk about doubting, they often view it as a call to a greater self-expression, radical individualism, or liberation from all ways of thinking. Some say if you're doubting, you are to simply stop doubting and lean on whatever is traditional or conservative. But I'd like to suggest this morning that there is a better way. Christ's invitation as we traverse this tricky road of doubt is not to lean to the extreme ends of radical individualism or to the other end of conservatism, but is to go in deeper into himself to meet with him. Between vilifying doubt and venerating it is a call to meet with Christ in the midst of it. And that is the way of Jesus, not to a life that is fully predictable and within our control, but it's a place where we place our whole trust and assurance in a God who never changes and is altogether good. 
The team and I have come up with this one line that sums up what we believe faith to be. The call to faith is not to unquestioning certitude, but to relational trust. Our faith is not built on the certainty of outcomes, but on the certainty of God's character, his nature, his goodwill and intent toward us. And this will always be a struggle. It will be the struggle that defines your spiritual life. It will be a, a struggle, the struggle that defines our life on earth. Will we choose to put our trust on ourselves, on the things of the world, on other people, or will we choose to put the entire weight of our trust on God? It will always be a struggle. But I'd like to point out this. The name Israel, which means the people of God, literally translates to wrestling with God or struggling. And the people of God, Hebrew, that word Hebrew would mean to wander, to wander. So just think about that for a second. The people of God in the Old Testament primarily identified as a people who struggled, who wrestled, who wandered with God. And so today, if you're struggling, if you're wrestling, if you're wandering, you just might be a person of God. So, you know, I have seven minutes to go much ground to cover, may the time be expended. Amen. <laughs> you know, honestly, you know, I, I'm, I'm tempted to take a, the sermon in a typical trajectory, which is like three points, you know, three practical tips on how to walk through a season of doubt. And, you know, I think it's useful. I think we need to do something like that. At some point, we are exploring something midweek. Stay tuned for that. We'll see how, right? But, you know, I think that's what has gotten us in trouble in the first place. We seek after formulas, tips, you know, quick fix solutions to get our seasons. And perhaps this is not something to which we lean on a three-step, four-step program, but this is a call to a deeper relational intimacy with Christ where we are out, where we are out of control, where we have no certainty of outcomes and our certainty is not placed on things panning out a certain way, but our certainty is placed on Him and how He produces good in our lives. So, you know, in closing, I want to share four invitations of the Spirit through doubt. And I believe God is inviting us through a season of doubt into a deeper place of faith and mercy. First off, doubt could be the Spirit's invitation to a deeper understanding. Proverbs 25, 2 says this, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. And this experience of doubt could be an invitation to search out the deeper things of God and His kingdom. Perhaps you were really contended with a certain kind of shallow knowledge, but God is beckoning you into a deeper understanding of His ways. In an age where Google is a verb, Google is a verb, we have gradually lost the art of seeking God for answers to our questions. Our spiritual masters of tarrying, waiting, and being diligent in seeking have largely atrophied. Doubt is an invitation to regain those muscles. Now, deeper understanding might even include unlearning and relearning some stuff, but more on that in the coming weeks when we talk about deconstruction. Next invitation for doubt is this. Doubt could be the Spirit's invitation to embracing a holy uncertainty. A holy uncertainty. John McComer says this about holding uncertainty. It is the capacity to live with a very loose grip or no grip at all on our plans and more important on the outcomes of our plans because our security is rooted in a relational connection to God, not in a false sense of control. Now in times of great uncertainty and trauma where we feel powerless, our default tendency is to grasp for control, whatever that looks like. 
But that is antithetical to our faith, to our hope, to love and the way of Jesus. To clarify, holy uncertainty does not mean we don't plan for our future, we just go, K Sarah, Sarah. Not at all. It just means that when we make our plan, we let go of the outcomes on an emotional level. We strategize and do our best, but we make peace with the fact that we are not in control with what happens, and that is okay. Now, I think, personally, the saddest verse in all scripture is John 6, 66. Pay no attention to the number. It says this, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This verse follows Jesus' feeding of 5,000, his walking water, and this verse follows him revealing to the crowd of disciples that I am the living bread, eat my flesh and drink my blood. It was a hard and absurd saying for the hearers. No one understood what he was saying. They couldn't understand him. And the same crowd of disciples that witnessed the miracles, the great things, left him. The Bible notes this exchange that Jesus had with the remaining disciples. He says, do you not want to leave too? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So I put it to you that the end goal of doubt isn't so much that we have answers, satisfactory answers to all our questions, but that we will know and come to trust the one who has the words of eternal life. And these words may not resolve your intellectual dissonance, but it is what your soul truly longs for and needs. Henry Nouwen says this, getting answers to my questions is not the goal of the spiritual life. Living in the presence of God is the greater call. Christ's love is the only credible answer to the interrogations of doubt. Nothing else would satisfy. Last couple of points. Doubt could be the Spirit's invitation back into community. How can we, not talk, how can we talk about doubt and not talk about doubting Thomas? John 20, this story we're familiar with. Now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 26, note this. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace or shalom be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my sight. Stop doubting and believe. Now there's much work that we can do with the text, but I want you to just catch one detail in this story. Jesus waited one whole week to reveal himself to Thomas, which says to us that the disciples lived with a doubter for one whole week. Those who had seen and now come to the revelation of the resurrected Christ made room for a doubter in their midst. The disciples made room for a doubter to be with them. And the question extends to us today. Do we, this community of faith, have room for those who doubt? That verse in Matthew 28 that we read, the disciples, they went to Galilee, the 11 of them, went and met with the resurrected Christ. And he says this in God's word. When they saw him, some, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They worshipped him, but some doubted. There is room for doubt even in the worship of God. Another translation would say that they worshipped him, yet some doubted. That means that in worship, even in seeing the resurrected Christ in the flesh, some of them still carried doubt 
in their hearts. It reminds me of, of uh, this, the, the Psalms being a book of liturgy and praise to God. The Psalm is full and raw with honesty, pain and suffering. I think of that line that Jesus says that they worship me in spirit and in truth. That word truth is not so much theological truth, but that tr- word truth means to have nothing hidden. It's come to God with complete honesty laid bare. There is room for doubt even in the worship of God. Closing with my last point. Doubt could be the Spirit's invitation to encounter. Now, the gospel does does not account for what happened to Thomas after this encounter, but we are privileged to have church history, and it tells us that Thomas was the first missionary to India, and he was ultimately martyred there. And so today, we have generations upon generations of followers of Jesus in India because a doubter became a missionary. Of all the disciples, so-called doubting Thomas eventually became transformed Thomas. It seems that those who wrestle with God the longest and deepest tend to go the farthest. You know, I think of my brother. You know, my brother, we all know he came to faith in our church. And many of you don't know the story. We were on our way to church in his car. I was preaching that Christmas morning. And he leans over and says to me, Andre, are you going to do that salvation thing at the end? If you are going to do it, I just want to tell you that I won't raise my hands. No offense, but I have all these questions. I'm still not ready to surrender. That's what he said to me, Right? But then we all know the story, many of you know, he was here and God met with him in such a powerful way. And today, that doubter is now leading a life group and leading our ministry, one of our ministries. What if we saw the doubters of today as the missionaries and leaders of tomorrow? I've seen this happen story after story, people after people, person after person, who in the throes of doubt, God met with them and their lives were completely transformed. What removed the doubt from my brother in this case was not reason, motivation, or coercion. It was when the God of the universe stepped into the picture. What if doubt isn't the sign of the end of faith, but the beginning of a deeper, richer version of faith? What if on the other side of doubt is not the abandonment of faith, but a renewed trust and radical commitment to Jesus? What if we saw the doubters of today as the transformed disciples of tomorrow? Now in closing, Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote the books Lord of the Rings, we love him, coined the word, he came up with his own word. You know, it's because you know, if you're smart enough, you write enough, you can come up with your own words. That's the goal of my life, uh, to come up with my own words. Yeah. He coined this word, eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. And he defines it as a sudden happy turn in a story with which pierces you with a joy that brings tear. It's a narrative technique that he uses, that C.S. Lewis uses as well. Now, you catastrophe is broken up into two parts, you meaning good, and catastrophe meaning destruction. And so a good catastrophe, more specifically, so when we logically conclude or imagine that an event that means, that would have meant our ultimate doom, turned out, in fact, to save us. And he says this about what you catastrophe is. He says, it's a sudden and miraculous grace it does not deny the existence of this catastrophe, another word they invented, by the way, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. To the joy of deliverance. What is eucatastrophe? It's the 
eagles in Hobbit, when Bilbo and all the dwarves are being chased up the trees and they're on the edge of the cliff, they're about to be killed by the orcs, and then the giant eagles come. Bilbo is horrified at first, and then this monstrous birds approach, but these eagles are there to save them all. It is Gandalf's transformation to Gandalf the White. It's Aragorn's arrival with the army of the dead. It is stone table broken into Aslan's resurrection and return. It is the tool on the road to Emmaus. It is Thomas touching the wounds of Jesus, proclaiming, my Lord, my God. It is the resurrection of Christ. It is Jesus appearing to his disciples, hiding of their lives. It is my brother in doubt and apprehension, experiencing the presence of God. It is the people of God today who choose to hold on and cling on to Christ for their lives in spite of their questions and disappointments and meets with him. A you catastrophe. We need a new generation of Henry Nowens, C.S. Lewis, Thomas, and Peters. But in order for them to enter into their destiny, they have to be matured, tested, trialed by fire, through doubt. That is how they mature in faith and enter their destiny. That's why we land with that stunning line in Jude 22. Be merciful, to all who doubt. Be merciful to all who doubt. Because today's doubters can very well become tomorrow's missionaries.